address our needs here, but even more importantly, the needs of our community. But uh, primarily that was led by a couple of our staff members who uh, just gave tirelessly of their time and effort. Again, uh, as early as Monday morning, uh, Tuesday morning, they were here to kind of champion our effort, not only to take care of people and getting them fed, but also to take care of our facilities and go out and take care of other people's properties. And those two are a bit back there. And uh, I want to give you the chance uh, to say thank you to them. Kathy Robinette is in charge of our food pantry and our kitchen. And she was feeding people. Stand up, Kathy. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. There you go. And next to her is a guy named James Thompson, who is our facilities director. And James and these two together, they were amazing and really helped to allow us to be uh, a place of hope and encouragement to our community. So without their effort, uh, so little would have been done that was done. So we just are so grateful. And uh, they just are sort of representative of our entire staff and our lay leaders and people who volunteered. It was really a beautiful thing to behold. So we want to say thanks again um, for all of the efforts that were put together to make uh, this week an opportunity for us to live into our mission of loving God and loving neighbor. We're going to be taking up a special offer, two things. We're going to be taking up a special offering next Sunday uh, for those who are much more adversely affected than we were uh, further south. And um, so you may want to keep that in mind. You're going to make your checks out the Church of the Palms. Check the website tomorrow, whenever, and we'll give you details about that offering. Uh, you can certainly, you know, bring it in earlier than that, but especially Sunday, we're going to be making that offering on behalf of those who are further affected by this. And then uh, secondly, we are going to be collecting supplies for those people who are in need. We're especially thinking of people down in Makali, the migrant workers down there, whose basically their camps have been kind of wiped out. And, uh, and other organizations, we're going to be hopefully coupling with Temple Sinai to do a joint relief effort and uh, working with uh, Presbyterians and also supporting our food pantry, which we have managed, thankfully, managed to sort of empty out. So our job will be to you know, try to continue to keep that sustained into the months to come. So please uh, think of that and uh, give generously toward that effort. And then also check the website because we're going to be giving a list beginning tomorrow of all the supplies that we could use for people to donate. And as early as Tuesday, we invite you to come onto the campus, go to the front office, drop off your supplies. We'll sort them, get them into the right piles, and make sure that they get to the right places. But uh, check the website beginning tomorrow, maybe tomorrow at noontime or so, and you'll see a list of the things that we're collecting. And we would love to have you uh, bring that in over the course of the next week or two. And then we will make a point to get it down to uh, where it needs, most needs to go over the course of the next um, the next several uh, days and weeks. So, Whew. do I really have to preach? <laughs> um, too many of you are saying no. No. Uh, okay, so let's now turn uh, to uh, the Word of Scripture and wonder about what God's Word might say to us as we uh, think about the events of the week past and what maybe God might be saying to us as we've lived it out. And so we're in 1 Corinthians today, chapter 12. We're going to read from verses 12 through 26. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and he's wondering to them about what the real nature of the church is about. So um, hear the word of God. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves and free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. One member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Amen. Let's pray. We ask, O oh Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, these words that were just read will somehow make their way into our hearts and souls so that we may truly understand what is the nature of reality and what you are intending your world to be. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Robert Frost, in his great poem entitled Mending Wall, tells a story of two neighbors who meet every spring at the wall that divides their property. It's a stone wall that every winter loses some of its stones which fall to one side or the other, creating gaps in the wall. Well, on a spring day each year, the two neighbors meet to put the stones back into place and to keep the wall erect between them. So as they go about this annual ritual of mending the wall, Frost wonders with his neighbor if there's any point to keeping on reconstructing this wall since the wall was originally designed in there to keep the cattle from roaming from one property to the next, but neither has cattle anymore. All they have is orchards and there's little risk of the fruit wandering from one field to the next. Why must we keep this rebuilding this wall, he asks. And his neighbor's response is the now timeless phrase, good fences make good neighbors. And Frost's response in the poem is, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. You know, when life gives us the luxury, you and I are good at building walls or at least establishing our boundaries. What mine, what's mine is mine, is what's yours is yours. Is the tree on your property or is it on my property? Where does my lawn end and yours begin? Automatic garage door openers allow us to slip into the sanctuary of our houses without any neighborly contact. Civil engineers have drawn the exact line between my property and yours, lest there be any confusion. Good fences make good neighbors. And you can't fault that sentiment. It makes all the sense in the world. If what you believe is that a neighbor is someone you'll let get 
pretty close, but not real close. Someone you're happy to touch base with, catch up with across the fence, but someone whose business you really don't want to make your business. Keep replacing those stones so there's no confusion. You are who you are, I am who I am. And life feels cleaner that way. And yet it may be, at the same time, one of the great human delusions. As smart as we are, as logical as we are, and our minds work, this thought that we don't necessarily need each other may be one of our greatest self-deceptions. Because the truth is, the universe just simply doesn't work that way. We are connected to each other, whether we want to be or not. We are interrelated to each other, whether we can see it or not. Each entity in the world affects all the other entities. You've heard me talk before about the work of Edward Lorenz, a, a meteorologist of 50 years ago who was using a numerical computer model and trying to come up with a long-term weather forecast. And when he was rerunning the model, instead of using a factor of 0.506127, he took the shortcut and used just the factor of 0.506 and instead a minuscule variation. But what he found with that just simple alteration was a drastically different forecast. He realized that just with the slightest variation of factors, a significant outcome changes. Despite dropping that 0.000127 was enough to determine an entirely different outcome. It's where we get the idea of the butterfly effect. The butterfly theory says that the smallest actions can result in the largest of outcomes. And it goes to say that the flap of a butterfly's wings over Brazil can cause a hurricane over the Atlantic, which makes me want to find that blasted butterfly that got Irma up and going. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, The Luminous Web, says it this way, whatever language you prefer, the apparent truth is that we belong to a web of creation in which nothing, absolutely nothing, is inconsequential. The hairs of your head, a baby's sneeze, the gravitational pull of an electron at the far edge of the Milky Way, none of these things, she says, is negligible. Not one of them can be subtracted from creation or even rounded off without changing the whole gorgeous geometry of the universe. As much as we may want to distance ourselves from the guy across the street or the attendant at the bank or the government official down at the courthouse or the horses in the barn or the cows in the field or the stream down the way or the sky above or the ocean deep or the moon and the stars above, we're all, whether we know it or not, whether we see it or not, whether we want it or not, we are all connected. We need each other. It may be the biggest thing that Irma had to teach us, right? The storm that had been a part of our lives for the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, it was you know, something kind of out there, something maybe even easy to ignore, a little cyclone that then ended up turning into a big cyclone, and the big cyclone couldn't quite figure out where it wanted to go. I think she always knew where she wanted to go, but we didn't figure it out. Irma ultimately was a science experiment, right? not divine commentary, a science experiment. And while most of us would admit to hoping that Irma would not come our way, at the same time, we did not wish her on anyone, right? We did not wish her onto the East Coast or onto any other coast, right? Because we're connected to each other. 
Last weekend, we were not just Sarasotans. We were Venetians and Fort Myrians and Nepalians and Floridians and Southeastern Americans. We were human beings connected to each other and connected to some blasted butterfly in Brazil. So what did we do? What did we think to do when the storm came? We thought to come together. People found other people. Neighbors helped neighbors shutter their houses. Family members connected. Friends took in friends. All socioeconomic classes laid side by side in shelters. First responders put on their uniforms. Utility trucks sped down from New England. Georgians offered food and water to evacuees crossing their southern border. Folks without power stayed with folks who did. Bad storms make good neighbors. Bad storms take the veil from our eyes so that we can see, ah, this is what the world is really like. It's an interconnected web. People needing people. Creation needing creation. And somewhere in the middle of it, we get this glimpse of the Creator. Oh, yeah, we're tempted to look for the Creator in the trail of Irma's path, wondering why here and not there, but that's beside the point. The point is that we are deeply connected, and the great joy of life is in how we lose our oneness to ourselves, and we gain our oneness with all of what God has created. That's why Paul talks about to the Corinthians about the body of Christ. Paul's not coming up with some kind of new theory on church growth. No, Paul's reaching back to the beginning of time as, as to how it all came together. And it all comes together in being connected. In him, Paul writes later in Colossians, in him all things, all things hold together. The body of Christ is connected as a hand is to an eye, as a mouth is to a foot. We get closer to the truth of God when we get closer to each other. Three guests came under the McConnell roof this weekend along with a couple of dogs. None of us had shared an evening before, let alone two, let alone in a hurricane. But when the winds picked up and the lights went out, what did we have? Well, we didn't have cable, we didn't have the microwave, we didn't have the refrigerator, but we had each other. And there's something about that kind of community that beats even Netflix. In times of luxury, though, in times of luxury and fortune, we're tempted to dwell on these gadgets, right? And even call them the blessing of God. Oh, but that would really be selling God short, right? We might be tempted to think that God was the one who spared us from the harshness of Irma, but that would be selling God short. I wouldn't dare say that to my Fort Myers friends. That would be selling God short. God can't be that small. The one who set the universe into motion with his love and connects us to the stars and the butterflies, this God won't play favorites. Of course not. What he seems, though, to want to do is to show us what's always been the case, how connected we are, how much we need each other. Martin Rinkart was the Lutheran pastor of a little church in Eilenburg, Germany, 17th century. It was during the throes of the Thirty Years' War. Refugees had flocked into this little walled city of Eilenburg to escape all the killing that was happening around them. And with all those refugees, they brought the, bub the bubonic plague. 
So people in that little town that were dying at the rate of 50 a day, and it was the job of the local pastor, Martin Rinkart, to bury them. 8,000 died in that town, and among them was Rinkart's own wife. Stunning, stunning then to know that Martin Rinkart composed the words to a hymn that I'm sure many of you know. The hymn is entitled, Now Thank We All Our God. Now thank we all our God with hearts and minds and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom his world rejoices who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Countless gifts of love during the Thirty Years' War, the plague, the death of a spouse. Oh, God is not in these things. God is in the pastor and his people caring for the flock caring for the sick, caring for the afraid. These are the countless gifts of love. And maybe that's what Horatio Spafford was thinking when misfortune came his way like a hurricane. A successful 18th century businessman, Presbyterian elder, who first lost his only son and then later his four daughters when they were crossing the Atlantic and their ship sank. Following that, he lost most of his business to the Chicago Fire with virtually nothing and with well-meaning Christian friends trying to help them understand that their misfortune must be related to their own sin. The Spaffords boarded a ship for Palestine and set up a new home in Jerusalem and a new life and a new church called the American Colony. Their mission? to organize soup kitchens, clothes closets, homeless shelters, orphanages, hospitals for those who were hurting in Jerusalem. They, as a result, engendered the trust of Christian, Jew, Muslim alike, which prepared them later for the wake of World War I when the refugees flooded into Jerusalem. It was Horatio Spafford's community who were there with already their earned trust and with countless gifts of love which explains perhaps why it is Horatio Spafford's name that is listed in the old hymn books above the hymn that we are going to soon listen to. The hymn that Horatio Spafford composed, It Is Well With My Soul, words that came to Spafford's mind when his ship passed close to where his daughters perished, when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Our fortune lies not in ourselves. Our fortune lies in the fortunes of others. Bad storms make good neighbors. The wellness of our souls lies not in what fortune has come our way. It lies in what fortune we find in each other. When the poet Walt Whitman left the comfort of his Washington home to serve as an orderly in the medical tents of the Union camps, he brought himself face to face with the devastation of the Civil War. Some of his greatest poetry came from that place, and including this one line, I do not ask the wounded person Person, how he feels. I myself become the wounded person. And that's what the Apostle is telling us. Maybe that's what the Savior is telling us. Maybe that's what all the sages of the ages tell us. 
that as much as we might want to keep that stone wall between us and our fellow human beings, that isn't how the world works. The world wide web enfolds us. We are as essential to creation as creation is to us. We are as essential to our neighbor as our neighbor is to us. No such thing as a good wall making a good neighbor. Bad storms, maybe, but not good walls. And in this mysterious web, all the joy comes from all the countless gifts, all the countless gifts of love. When peace like a
If you would stand for the blessing. Friends, as we go out into our week, let's be, um, have our eyes open and our hearts open about how we might be able to make connections with our neighbors, both near and far. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.